Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Daniela Gutierrez-Flores, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Bill Taylor about his new book entitled Fugitive Freedom, The Improbable Lives of Two Impostors in Late Colonial Mexico, published this year by the University of California Press. Professor Bill Taylor is Muriel McEvison, Professor Emeritus of Latin American History at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of numerous books, including Theater of a Thousand Wonders, A History of Miraculous Images and Shrines in New Spain, Marvels and Miracles in Late Colonial Mexico, Through Text and Context, and Drinking Homicide and Rebellion in Colonial Mexican Villages. I am really excited to um, talk to him today about this fascinating story about two vagabonds in late colonial Mexico. And so welcome. Welcome, Professor. Thanks, thanks, thanks very much, Daniela. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so I um, wanted to begin. First, I have to say what an enjoyable read um, this was. It absolutely reads almost like a short novel or a, a long um, story and almost as picturesque novel as you um, argue in your, in your book. And it also reminded me of another piece of narrative historical work, The Return of Martin Guerre by Natalie Simon Davis, also the story of an infamous imposter in early modernity. So I, I think, as you point out, there is definitely something very compelling about imposters that captivates our imagination. And you pose a, at the beginning of the book a simple but very interesting question, which is how do imposters succeed? What, what, have to, what factors have to align for people to cover for them or to believe them? So I want to begin um, by asking how how you came to writing this book how did you become interested in the figure of the vagabond in colonial mexico and if you just in general could tell us how um this book came about okay um a, f a few years ago i started to downsize um and that included sorting and Talk, tossing uh, old research notes and microfilm. Doing that led me to uh, uh, think about some patterns in early Mexican history that I'd tried uh, unsuccessfully to explore early in my life as a historian. Uh, browsing in a box of film of Mexican Inquisition cases, I found part of, a part of the file for Joseph Aguayo and his impersonation of priests. Now that took me back to my early interest in strangers, imposters, and other people out of place in the story of how the Spanish empire was building in America uh, and both coming together and coming apart at the same time from the beginning of the 16th century. Mm -hmm. People who were called vagabundos had caught my eye in the 1960s, thanks to a book that I picked up in a used bookstore on Donceles Street in downtown Mexico City mm -hmm. called Los Vagabundos en la Nueva España, Siglo XVI. It had opened the subject for me, 
but based as it was on government decrees and regulations, it only gave me a sense of vagabondage as a nagging problem from the viewpoint of political authorities. It had little to do with the people identified as vagabonds themselves. So Mm -hmm. at that time, I went looking for them in Mexico's National Archive, uh, thinking that's where they'd be found. But loners on the move proved to be as elusive in the historical record there as they were in real life. Uh, I could find next to nothing about them as individuals. Uh, that, That seemed to me kind of ironic because... Vagabundos and, and, and rogues were often mentioned in colonial administrative records as they were in uh, that, that book uh, about vagabundos. But they remained anonymous. Uh, they're sort of, well, they're, they're, in that sense, they're a lot like most petty criminals who will show up in criminal records, you know, with a line or two, uh, uh, but, uh, but, but not much more. So they're, they're kind of like uh, ghosts. To, to history. Mm-hmm. They and, and my questions about misfits, uh, vagrants, empire, and disorder uh, didn't go away. Uh, in fact, my first publication centered on an 18th century account of runaway slaves in a remote part of the tropical fringes of southern Veracruz. Uh, but I turned to other subjects uh, where I could dig deeper and, and maybe make a more definite uh, contribution. Uh, study of land systems and village communities, uh, priests in their parishes and and shrines. Vagabundos and imposters were on my list of unfinished business, in other words. And the Inquisition's several investigations into Aguayo's life of restless travel, impersonations, mishaps, and escapes uh, uh, finally gave me an opening. So that's really how it begins. Uh, That first Inquisition file on, on... Aguayo led to a wider search in the Inquisition papers in uh, the National Archive in Mexico City. Uh, and that turned up uh, several more files about about him. And, and that was something of a surprise because uh, it, it was rare for an individual to be processed more than once by the Inquisition. Um, so I had material on, on Aguayo. That's where really where I began. Uh, and then I remembered reading a different kind of case file in the Bancroft Library at uh, the University of California at Berkeley about another restless wanderer uh, who for a time also posed as a priest. And this is the trial record of Juan Atondo. Uh, so I had these two bodies of, of uh, uh, documentation to work with. And uh, I decided that looking at the two of them together rather than separately could help me understand and represent each one of them better as an individual. So that's how it began. Great. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I I was um, very interested in this elusiveness of the barabundos, of the rogues, and how you, um, it's almost like detective work, right? Um, tracing them in the archive and really reconstructing their, their lives. Right. Except this was, this was like a cold case, Daniela. Uh, <laughs> I, I started it uh, over 40 years ago and, and kind of gave up because I couldn't find characters like uh, Aguayona and Solano at that time. So, uh, but it, well, I'm glad, 
I'm glad you you went back to it because I think um, yeah the stories are are fascinating and um, so you uh, link the stories of these two men with a wider uh, literary tradition of the picaresque and so I was wondering um, how how uh, literature helped you in that sense. Um, to think through the lives of these two men. Well, let's uh, let's see. I I think of picaresque literature and picaros, uh, both literary and uh, and as we can find them in historical records, as part of the story of uh, great unsettling changes in uh, the long early modern period from the 16th uh, to the to the 18th centuries which uh, which I see as a time of of opportunities of uh, enormous change really of creation of expansion of destruction and above all of displacement uh, and migration uh, where strangers were mm-hmm. being encountered at almost every turn uh, so I, I see the early modern period. I mean, it's. It, we, I guess we still talk about the the 16th century in Spain as the siglo de oro, the kind of golden age, and uh, yeah. that makes sense in some ways. Uh, you know, there's there's this expansion of Spain, of Spanish empire, of of precious metals coming from the new world, great new wealth that's there. Kind of, I wouldn't say Spain is awash in new wealth, but but there's a lot of of new wealth. Uh, and we've we've got a, a flowering of the arts and and literature and architecture and and construction uh, uh, expansion in various ways. But it's also, uh, as I'm suggesting, this this time of uh, of of destruction uh, of of things falling apart for a lot of people. Uh, when we talk about golden age, I think it's always important to ask uh, golden for whom. And exactly. it, certainly, it certainly wasn't golden for for everyone. In fact, for for most people, I think they were they were thrown into new circumstances that might be promising. You know, in some ways, this is a time of rising expectations, but it's also a time of, of fear and of, of of warfare and of disease and and uh, a sense of a, a shifting and threatened world. Um, uh, it's the time of the collapse of the uh, the universal Christian. Uh, state in um, and and religion in in Western uh, uh, in in Western Europe, uh, the rise of Protestant denominations, the, this crisis for the uh, the churches and and of Christianity as it had been known to to that point. So it's a it's a troubling time, um, mm-hmm. and a, and a time when a lot of people are th- kind of thrown uh, into new circumstances, not by choice, but uh, uh, by by circumstances, and uh, the, the 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 picaro and and I would say picaresque literature are are part of that story um, of, uh, of of people who are who are uh, uh, left to their own devices. Uh, they've lost the community they they they, they came from, the family, uh, uh, the, the relatives, the the, the kind of the older social networks uh, um, mm-hmm. 
are beginning to uh, are beginning to fall apart and change. Uh, uh, so it's it's a, it's a troubling time, uh, a time of opportunity, uh, but also a, you know a time when when people had to find ways to to make a living for themselves uh, that was improvised. Uh, urbanization is was- happening this time too. Go ahead. You know. I thought it was interesting that um, you talked about how elusive they are in the archive, and yet they are omnipresent in literature and in culture and in painting even. They're everywhere, Picaros, in in, um, Spanish early modern culture, um, but not so much in the archive. So what do you make of um, of that difference? I I, th- I think it uh, there becomes a new preoccupation with strangers. Strangers mm-hmm. are encountered in new ways, uh, and and uh, as as uh, a poet that I that, that I enjoy, a man named James Tate uh, said uh, that uh, vagabonds are uh, strangers in a heap of trouble. Mm-hmm. So they're not just strangers, but by strangers, by definition, are suspect. You're concerned about them. You're worried about them, uh, and uh, this 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 new literature, this picaresque literature, in some ways, it seems to me, is a uh, uh, a mocking uh, or a challenge, at least, to uh, an older style of literature in Spain mm-hmm. uh, that had been popular in the 15th and early 16th centuries, uh, uh, the romances of chivalry, uh, Amadis de Gaula. Or the pastoral novels of the time, <clears throat> uh, which are you know highly, I don't know, shall we say, idealized, romanticized uh, accounts of of life and daring do and honor and and uh, and pride and uh, and 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 here the circumstances of the 16th century uh, begin to look a little different. Um, the the term picaro, at least according to uh, Michel Cavillac, uh, a French scholar who's spent most of his life uh, or his career as a scholar uh, working on maybe the most famous of the picaresque novels, Guzman de Alfarache, uh, suggests that the term picaro really didn't come into currency. It may have been used before, but didn't really come into currency until the early 16th century. <clears throat> and at that time, it was uh, it was essentially a, a negative term. It was uh, it, it was it was uh, uh, almost uh, like an expletive. Um, you didn't want to be called a picaro. It was to suggest that you were <laughs> you were a criminal that uh, uh, that uh, you, chief. you couldn't be tr- you couldn't be trusted. Uh, there was really nothing good about you. Um, but the, the the Picaro becomes a literary figure uh, in the 16th century. The, the first um, picaresque novel is uh, is Guzman de Alfarache. Excuse me, not Guzman. It's uh, Lazarillo de Tormes, Lazarillo, which was for, which was first published in the 1550s. And then there's a hiatus for a while before we have this explosion of picaresque novels, which comes at the tail end of the 16th and the early 17th centuries with uh, Guzman del Farache and uh, uh, La Picara Justina and uh, and uh, uh, Quevedo's novel uh, uh, 
uh, about Pablos, the uh, uh, the Picaro, uh, and 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 a and number of others, and then, and then translations of all these these Spanish novels into other languages, and 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 other European countries kind of latch onto this too. It's it's not that they're imitating Spain; it has more to do with this common worry about about vagrants. Uh, uh, in 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 this this little book, Fugitive Freedom, I talk very briefly about uh, the vagrancy laws from the end of the 15th century on, uh, where where England is actually the place where kind of the most consistent and and numerous laws uh, show up, and then they we find them in Spain and France and the Low Countries and Italy and everywhere. There's there's a concern again about strangers among us, about people. Outsiders who have, who are who are now to be seen. What do we make of them? Uh, they're they're strangers in a heap of trouble. Is the is the is the assumption? And uh, so the uh, the picaresque literature is in in some ways a reflection of that. The picaro himself is, and it's usually a him. Although there are some female p- uh, picaras as well. Uh, but uh, these are. These are men on the loose. They're 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 masterless men or boys. Uh, they're 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 without masters. They're uh, uh, they're loners. Uh, they're uh, uh, rather cynical. They've got to make their their way in in a uh, in an improvised fashion. So they become in it seems to me the, the literary picaro becomes a kind of mirror to this society of. Uh, of uh, of worry and and of disruption uh, and becomes enormously popular in the 17th century from the early 17th century uh, on and and doesn't really diminish in in, in the 18th century as mm-hmm. a popular even though we don't have nearly as many new picaresque novels uh, that are being written in Spain as we had uh, uh, earlier but uh, the, the, the Guzman del Farache, uh, according to Irving Leonard, was the uh, next to Don Quixote was was the most uh, imported uh, fictional work in the New World, uh, the Spanish New World in the uh, in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. So it's it's circulating, it's it's popular, it's known, uh, as was Lazario de Tormes. Uh, uh, El Buscon, Quevedo's novel, evidently was not as well known and was not issued as many times, but uh, uh, also is a, a, a nice example of this this idea that the Picaro is both a survivor and 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 quick witted and cunning and and good with words, uh, but also I thought uh, these cases. I thought these cases were uh, fascinating because uh, the very genre of the picaresque is almost a confessional um, narrative, right? It's Lazarillo is narrating his life to to an authority, and that's the case um, with other picaros too. They they're narrating their transformation. So in that sense, Aguayo and Atondo are also facing um, an authority and, well, um, almost by obligation are um, narrating their, the events of their lives and not quite the moral transformation that we expect from the picaro. 
right? That's correct. Yeah, th- th- there isn't the th- there isn't the moral in in either case um, that's that's being consciously narrated. Uh, Guzman de Alfarache is is it kind of fits with what you just said about Lazarillo in 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 the sense that it's 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 a uh, it's a novel that's written retrospectively that is it's it's written after the story is already completed that Guzman is looking back on his life and telling you that he's going to tell you what a bad man he was uh, uh, not necessarily with the idea that he's redeemed at the end because he still is pulling a fast one on us uh, at least according to Kaviyak. Uh uh, but it is very much a confessional form in that sense of, of looking back and, and describing his life for uh, the, the, the benefit of, uh, of a readership. Now, exactly what that benefit was, how he was read at the time or later is, is a serious question, a very elusive question, a kind of will of the wisp, I suppose. Uh, and it's a, been a roadblock, I think, to... Um, a certain style of literary history, uh, especially in the last 50 years, where the the, uh, the the critic wishes to tell you about uh, the readership, how the how the how a work was read, and to do it largely by reading it him or herself and and trying to imagine what it was like, rather than being able to document actual readers and what they may have said about a work. It's a very difficult problem, and it's the same kind of problem for historians. In that sense of uh, of trying to imagine, in, in my case here, whether Aguayo <clears throat> or Atondo knew much about picaresque literature or not. Uh, my guess is that that Aguayo did, although he didn't necessarily read any picaresque literature, just as we can't be certain that Bernaldias del Castillo had read Amadis de Gaula, even though he, he refers to it when he he in the Cortez forces reached the outskirts of the Valley of Mexico and looked down on Tenochtitlan, and he said, "Oh my God, this is this is this is amazing! I can't I, I can't describe it. Uh, it's like from the tales of Amadis." Well, that's great. We've got him actually invoking a literary work, but we don't know whether he read it or not, and it's kind of irrelevant whether he did. Uh, or not, he'd heard yeah, of it. Yeah, the fact is, he knew, the he knew it. That's right. And I, and I think these picaresque novels are known in the same way. Uh, whether they're actually read by a wide audience, we, we don't know. But we do know that they circulated, copies circulated in the New World. But yeah. I think, again, they become part of popular culture in the same way that, that Amadis speak, uh, was, was part of, of Bernal Diaz's uh, view of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And so... Could you introduce these fascinating characters to our listeners? Uh, we can maybe begin with Jose Aguayo. Who were they? Okay. What do we know about them? Okay, let's let, let's see what I can do. Uh, first, let me let me say just uh, a word about uh, what seems what seems similar about them. Uh, that both of these men come from the late 18th century, from the late colonial period. Both come from central Mexico. Uh, both were eccentric uh, misfits. They're without friends, uh, without masters. Uh, when we first encounter them in the Inquisition records, uh, they're, uh, they're men on the loose, uh, often making their way by impersonating officials, uh, especially priests. Um, and 
and by other deceptions, uh, broken promises, theft. So they've got, there, there's some things that they have in common. Uh, 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 and, and, and posing as, as a priest was a very serious matter. This is precisely why have a, we have you know, this, this extraordinary documentation about the two of them. If they had never posed as a priest, we wouldn't have an Inquisition record about them. And the Inquisition was a different kind of court uh, than the royal courts, the criminal courts, uh, and was prepared to spend time looking into a matter that they regarded as as very serious, a matter of life and death. These these are imposters who are threatening the uh, uh, the mortals, the, the immortal souls of uh, of of, uh, of of good Christians. Uh, so from the, the Inquisition's point of view, the, this is a, a very serious crime. These are serious criminals. But kind of looking back on them or ourselves, it looks like they're small-time operators. Uh, neither is inclined to violence. Neither committed a major felony. Uh, uh, neither of them was well-educated, but both of them are literate. And I think that's important, uh, that they mm-hmm. live by words as much as deeds. Um, they're marginal characters, all right, but they've got a kind of cultural knowledge. They have certain skills, uh, and they have a credible disguise uh, that could uh, could make them be seen as insiders uh, to, to at least some people rather than the outsiders that they were effectively were. Aguayo was more the uh, serial charlatan um, (laughs) and loner, uh, but he's very good with words. Uh, He's a schemer. He's a habitual scofflaw. Uh, He's quick quick to profit by deception and uh, be on his own way. Uh, He escapes a number of times from some pretty tricky situations. Not always. he falls into traps here and there too. By his account, uh, he's he's born in the mining town of Guanajuato in 1747. Uh, his father is an illiterate uh, uh, teenager, actually, when uh, when Aguayo was born, uh, uh, and he made his living in a kind of marginal way, sifting silver ore tailings. Uh, in one of the mines in Guanajuato. Uh, The boy's mother died when he was young. Uh, He was estranged from his father's second family. Uh, And apparently early on, uh, before he was a teenager, his father sent him to Querétaro, Querétaro, to the south, to to work as a ranch hand. He comes back to Guanajuato a year or so later. he, he, where he uh, he learned to read and write from uh, a local Jesuit, and he served as an Do we know if acolyte. he was Spanish? Uh, this is this is part of his mystique. Uh, he claims mm-hmm. to be of Spanish descent. He claims to be of old Christian descent. That's super important here, and both of these men do that. But it's it's very important to the whole notion of identity at this time. You've got all sorts of people who are claiming to be Espanoles. Uh, to, to become a priest, you needed to be identified as an Espanol. So, for mm-hmm. example, Jose Maria Morelos, 
who we think of as a mestizo or mulatto, um, identified himself in his uh, professional records as an Espanol. Remember, he's, a, he's an ordained priest, uh, uh, this figure who's uh, one of the most famous uh, fathers of independence in Mexico. Uh, he, and, and Morelos is far from alone. Everybody who possibly could claim to be an Espanol, if they could, uh, because it carried with them certain rights and, and privileges, certain possibilities uh, uh, that uh, you couldn't hope to aspire to if you were identified as a casta or an indio or a negro. Uh, you couldn't become a priest. You couldn't enter certain professions or trades. Uh, uh, you, you, uh, a formal education was going to be closed off to you. Uh, you had a certain uh, freedom of speech is not something we would kind of generally talk about in this colonial society as as, as a right. But if you were an Espanol, you had a certain freedom to speak and a freedom to silence others that you didn't have if you were a, an indio or a mulatto or a, uh, a castizo. So here's, here's our man Aguayo, Solano, excuse me, not Solano, excuse me, uh, Atondo, both, both claim to be Espanolis. Aguayo, um, in Aguayo's case, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a kind of disconnect between the way he identifies himself for the court and the court accepts whatever he wants to say about himself and his ancestry. Um, but witnesses who come forward, who, who met him when he was posing as a priest in rural uh, central, north central Mexico, uh, call him an indito. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he, they're asked to describe him. They say, well, he's small and he's, he's a little Indian. He's, he's not dark, uh, but but he has the features of an of an indio. We, so we call him an indito. Um, well, what's going on here? Uh, is that this connection a problem in the court in the legal no, process, it, or not really? The, the court the court doesn't care. <laughs> Basically, right. you know, if he wants to call himself an español, let him call himself an español. We sure. have something something yeah. more important to to be dealing with here. But it's interesting that he would choose to identify himself that way. And in a sense, he would have had to if he's going to pose as a priest. He's not a credible impersonator of a priest if he, uh, if he, if he looks like he's looked a Looked a certain way. Yeah. Now, that, it's not as if there weren't indios who were priests in the 18th century. Uh, but they were people, they were men who, who could demonstrate that they were descended from Indian nobility and they were they were given lesser jobs they were they were uh, uh, what, what were called priests de idioma that is they they were they were sent to parishes where uh, native languages were spoken uh, and and their career possibilities were really closed off and there weren't very many of them so to be a to be a priest was almost synonymous with uh, with being a being a, a being a Spaniard, or at least reputed to be uh, a Spaniard. Now, identifying as a Spaniard is also a way of of saying, of identifying yourself with a particular group and to say, we're not Indian, we're not black. Uh, it's it's a way of, of saying, we're not them. Uh, here's, here's who we are. Uh, 
which made for this this tremendous incentive for a very large number of people to claim to be Espanolis, whether they were or not. Uh, so the, 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 the discrimination on the basis of ethnicity uh, has to be more subtle. And I would say that the, the Aguayo case and his his appearance before the Inquisition is part of that. The, uh, the Inquisitors undoubtedly knew that or didn't see him as a Spaniard, but if he wants to identify himself that way, that's okay for our purposes in this in this uh, in this trial. So in any case, he uh, uh, he's 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 educated a bit. Uh, not a lot of formal education, but he has this. Uh, uh, he's learned to read and write, and he turns out to be a really skillful person with words. Uh, he must have been a very bright person. Uh, he served as an acolyte at mass, so he has some experience uh, in church, and I think that's part of the the reason he ends up impersonating priests is that he he, he knew enough and he learned enough to uh, to get away with this, and it was it was potentially lucrative. He was paid for confessions. He was paid to celebrate masses when he did. <laughs> uh, it's not as if he's a full time impersonator of priest. Uh, he's he admits that. Even as a teenager, he was a juvenile delinquent. That he'd 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 he'd, he'd stolen. Uh, he'd be he'd, he'd been engaged in some thievery and other kinds of uh, of ju- juvenile uh, 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 misdeeds. Um, and he hits the road pretty young as as a teenager, uh, moving from place to place in north central Mexico. Uh, for several years, remember he's 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 not been accepted by his father's uh, new fa- uh, new family, and his father basically, uh, I wouldn't say disowns him yet, but uh, but sends him on his way. Mm-hmm. By the age of twenty, he's back in Guanajuato. He, he's in jail, uh, apparently turned in by his father, although that's not altogether clear from the record. Uh, uh, and when he's released. His father refused to help him in any way, even with a meal or, or clothing. Um, Aguayo testifies in, in his first appearance before the Inquisition. Uh, he testifies rather grandly that at that point I found myself cast into the shadow of poverty. I left <laughs> determined to make my way in life. For good or ill? Now that's that sounds like uh, Lazarillo de Tormes. Or, uh, yeah, absolutely. Much. I mean, putting it exactly that way, uh, it's it's quite extraordinary. So he he's presenting himself in this, this kind of semi heroic way, uh, at least as a kind of anti anti hero. So we can see by the records we have that that Aguayo is is really uh, something of a wordsmith. And it takes a certain amount of pride in his his command of language, uh, both in his testimony and and on the road. Now, this is not so true of Atondo when we we get to him here in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So in any case, at at that point, his father has really disowned him now. And and Aguayo is is back to living by his wits um, and, and... and, uh, and and on the move. He's in and out of jail for theft and, and minor swindles. Uh, I suppose he's honing his talent for impersonation, uh, pretending to be a priest in rural villages and some larger towns in western and central Mexico. Uh, 
Uh, he's celebrating mass, uh, hearing confessions for a fee from time to time. Uh, but he's also posing as a, an official of the Royal Mint uh, and uh, a representative of the Inquisition, uh, a minor political office holder. It, it's interesting. He was that bold. His, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, his impersonations, he, he likes to be an official. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of being being recognized as as a person in authority, uh, and he's doing this still at a young age. Uh, he's when he's arrested um, in Leon, Guanajuato. He's only twenty two years old, uh, and and he's already committed. He's already pre- posed as a priest and, and and other kinds of officials, uh, and he's arrested for for these crimes against the state and the church. Uh, um, Could you no, talk about? Uh, sorry. No, go ahead. Could you talk about what this impersonation entails? Because uh, you talk about um, him dressing, having um, the the official habit made, but it would also mean speaking a certain way. Uh, so, what did these sources tell us about what impersonating a priest or an inquisitor um, would look like? Right. Well, he had to carry himself in a certain way, but also not to not to be pretentious, uh, or at least it, not that not. It's not as if there weren't pretentious priests in in the colonial period, but uh, but uh, the way he was going to make it, make his way uh, as an impersonator. And remember, he's only doing this kind of in short bursts. He he does it in one small town and is there for a few days, and then he's gone before they can kind of catch up to him and <laughs> figure out who he is and what he, and what he's about but he's he's uh he's only 22 and y- you know you couldn't uh, you, you couldn't be ordained as a priest until you were 24 or 25 at this time and so wherever he went uh, he was always regarded as well he seems he seems young as a priest but uh, evidently he he knew how to carry himself as a priest. He he was he, he was a good talented. Guy. Yeah, I, I think there's a real talent there. Also, I think it's important that he, in a sense, this is part of his disguise. He um, he's inconspicuous. He's very small. He doesn't look threatening in any way. So he looks kind of innocuous, and you know, nothing nothing particular here. Uh, and uh, in, in in fact, looks are deceiving, but but uh, that was helpful to him as way as well. And he also tells us that in celebrating the mass, for example, that he uh, that he'd studied the priests that he he'd worked with in Guanajuato, and so he knew kind of the basic form of the mass. He'd memorized some prayers. Uh, when he was asked in one case to, to, to celebrate mass when he was on the road, uh, he said, well, you know, I, I was asked by a priest to do this. And uh, this was after the priest himself had celebrated mass. And I, I took note of uh, the, the page of, of the missile that he was using and the, the, what he was saying in prayer. And, and uh, I opened the, I opened the book to the same, to the same spot. And, uh, uh, said a few of those same words. He could read, of course, so you know he could read some of that. But then he said, you know, when I kind of got lost uh, or, or didn't remember what what was being said or couldn't remember a prayer, I would mumble under my breath. 
So he, he, he was an improviser. In a sense, he's a performer. He's an actor. He's pretending to be a priest uh, uh, is, is the point here. He's a simulator in that sense. Uh, and he wouldn't uh, be facing the people, right? That's correct. That's so. right. But he, this is going to work only if there isn't a priest present when he's celebrating Mass or confessing. And it's really only, only going to work in, in small uh, rural communities that didn't ordinarily see a priest. A priest might visit uh, once a month or maybe once a year, maybe only during, during the Easter season. Uh, and, th and they were hungry for the services of a priest. Uh, it's important to recognize religion was still, as, as it still is, but, but then at that point was was something vital. It was super important. And the rituals of the church were extremely important to, to, to many people. Uh, you, you wanted the services of a priest. You wanted to be able to confess. Uh, maybe there were a lot of people who wanted to confess more than the once a year that was permitted to many people uh, during the, the so-called Easter duty, when a group of priests would show up in a town and Everybody in the town would come to uh, to confess, and of course, at that time, you you might get five minutes with the priest. Uh, you were, you weren't going to have a leisurely confession. Uh, so here comes along this 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 young priest, and he he seems willing to sit down for confession, and he'll give us mass. He'll, he'll in a sense, he's he's offering the protection and the rewards of of being a Christian. Uh, uh, so people cared about that. Uh, but when when I, when Aguayo tried to do this in larger towns and cities, and didn't leave right away, he was. That's when he got caught. That's that's when he had trouble. So, what do you think um, Aguayo's case uh, tells us about the position of the church in late in, in 18th century Mexico? Well, uh, again, I'd start with the idea that. The church was was fundamentally respected. We the the idea that we've got a, a century of enlightenment in Latin America, in which kind of secular values and uh, and deep suspicion of the church and and the priesthood is rampant. I don't think that's true. Uh, it could be true in some circles, in some places, uh, perhaps more in 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 certain regions than others. But as a rule. People regarded themselves as Catholics, uh, good Catholics, uh, that they, they, they performed their basic duties as Catholics. They confessed and took communion uh, at least once a year. Uh, they attended Mass on a regular basis. If you didn't do those things, you were conspicuous. You stood out. And even if you didn't care too much about them, you didn't want to stand out in that way. Because to be a member of this society in good standing, you needed to be a Christian. Uh, and if you weren't, if you were excommunicated, uh, or if you set yourself apart in that way, you might be suspected of being a judaisante, of, of being a uh, of being a Jew, or uh, uh, being a closet uh, a Jew, or being a, a blasphemer, or something else. Again, a stranger, and you become a stranger at that point, and again, a stranger suspect, uh, a strange, possibly in a heap of trouble. So socially, and I would say uh, spiritually, uh, uh, that this was, this was very important. Uh, I, 
that that came home to me in a different way when I I did this long-term study of shrines and miraculous images in in New Spain during the colonial period. Uh, uh, that uh, the hundreds of shrines that uh, uh, that were supported and protected uh, over centuries uh, is an extraordinary thing. Uh, so I think it's uh, it, it's something that we have to take into account, and in that regard is as 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 a kind of value system and a, and a kind of social uh, institution that was uh, that was on the wane uh, at the t- at the time that Aguayo and uh, and Atondo come along, challenged in some new ways for sure, especially the the power of the church, uh, the, the the crown in the 18th century, the the Bourbon crown is is uh, is is trying to kind of take back power from. Uh, from the church, which during the 17th century in particular had had become very much a powerful political institution, not just a, uh, a, a spiritual institution. Right. So before we move to Atondo, um, I thought it was so fascinating that even after years of deceit and lies, um, why you never fully abandons his life as an imposter and then as a picaro. So... Uh, and the Inquisition at the end basically gives up on him and trying to prosecute him. He, they're like sick of him. They've had enough, right? Um, what do you think this is? What do you make of this wonderful ending for his life? Well, you know, I don't know that I would have written the book at all if if I hadn't found that single sheet of paper at the at the very end of the last file for Aguayo. Where, to my surprise, he'd you know he'd he'd spent 14 years in Cuba. He'd been sent there on penal servitude for his uh, his uh, his spirit his his crimes against the church. Um, been away a long time. Came back somehow. He survived. How he survived is an interesting question too. Uh, that he tells us rather little about. He's a great master of half truths and uh, and the selective fact. Um, but when he comes back from Cuba, uh, he. Uh, he he's, he express, expresses great contrition. He's back in Guanajuato. He's in jail for a while. They're observing him because you know they said, well, you know, what's ha- since when does this guy come back at all? Most people who are sent off for penal servitude in Cuba never come back. Uh, and he, he asks to be allowed to go north, the, the, the great uh, Tierra Adentro in in, in New Spain. Uh, and he goes to Alamos Sonora, the, a new mining camp, and whoops, to, with the idea that you know, he can make a, a life for himself there. But no, <laughs> a couple of years later, he, he comes back, and and this single sheet of paper identifies him being arrested in Mexico City. Uh, I think it's Mexico City rather than Guanajuato at this point, although I wasn't sure about that when I was writing the book. But in any case, he comes back to central Mexico. He's arrested. And he's arrested because, again, he's posing as a priest, and uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and he's swindled somebody who's, who's now chasing after him. So it it's almost like the the, the cover of the book, which is drawn from uh, an early edition of the Pedicillo Sarniento, uh, Fernandez Elizardi's book, where we've got our man being uh, chased down the down the street by a, an irate uh, uh, person who's been swindled by him. So. 
it's amazing to me. I mean, <laughs> that was that was the great puzzle. How how possibly could <laughs> could this guy do this uh, <laughs> and survive at it for as Never long as he up. did? So in that in that sense, for me, he's he's a super picaro. He's more picaresque than any of the <laughs> literary true. picaros that I can think of, and certainly more more picaresque than. Uh, uh, than the Pedicillo Sarniento, who's, who's, who's a great picaro for much of his life, but then is reformed and redeemed at the end, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a, with a kind of Hollywood ending here, a kind of happy story at the end. Well, that doesn't happen for, for Aguayo, and it doesn't happen for the churches, the, ch- the story that the church wanted to tell about him, which would be the story of reconciliation and redemption, right. which, which does, not, does not happen. He is a lost case completely. He's, he's a lost case. It's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> so can we um, talk about Atondo now that he is um, the other, the Juan Atondo, the other character that you talk about in the, in the book? Um, what, who, who was he? What position did he uh, occupy in, in Mexican colonial society? What do we know about him? You, you talked about their similarities now. Okay, so Atondo is born 40 years later than, than uh, Aguayo. Uh, he's from Mexico City. Uh, I've already suggested that there are some basic ways in which he's both like Aguayo and, and like the, the classic Picaro, uh, the, the loner on the make, uh, uh, wandering around, uh, disowned by family and and friends and uh, restless and uh, and and still kind of relatively young and 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 uh, a, gr- a great deceiver. Uh, so he's he's a restless soul, but he's he's a good deal more unsteady than Aguayo. Uh, he leads a life of many false starts and sudden, rather bewildering departures. Uh, uh, but like Aguayo, he's he's born poor, but not destitute. He's literate, uh, uh, rather fickle, uh, uh, not violent, uh, more than capable of deception, lies, and broken promises. Uh, uh, as as a young man, really as a as a as a teen and preteen, probably he aspired to be a Franciscan priest. Uh, he'd had an uncle who was a Franciscan. Uh, but he abandoned his studies and goes back to them repeatedly, at least four times. He 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 makes a false start at becoming a novice, uh, a Franciscan novice. So he's got this relationship to religion that I, I think is fundamentally different than than Aguayo's. Uh, he has what he calls his propension religiosa. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, he never becomes a priest. Uh, he, uh, uh, he, 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 he abandons his studies. He, he, he's apprenticed as a, uh, as a tailor. Um, and he's just very unsteady. He, he, uh, uh, he, 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 he falls in love, uh, uh, several times kind of suddenly, uh, and impulsively. Uh, and each time he's quick to abandon the, the woman, uh, in one case, it's a woman that a young woman that he married, and there was an infant daughter. Um, this was restlessness of a different kind. Uh, um, it, it, he spoke vaguely about uh, 
the illness that I suffer and being governed by uh, uh, his unruly heart. The heart really is, is the metaphor for his life. That's the way he thinks about his life. It's, it all comes back to the heart, the, this kind of restless, unruly uh, heart. It's a little like St. Augustine's uh, conv- uh, uh, confessions in, in that sense. Uh, the, the Inquisition looked at his heart a little differently. They saw the heart, his heart is corrupted, not just uh, unruly. Um, he's not much of a wordsmith uh, or, or calculating in his testimony. Uh, although uh, sometimes he let loose uh, a nervous torrent of words. He certainly got a lot of words, but, but he rarely uses them to good effect. Uh, What's special about his record is the, he writes out this unusually long confession. It's, it's rare to see a written confession at all. Um, mm-hmm. but, but unbidden, while he's, he's, after he'd been in the, in the Inquisition jail for about a year, uh, he writes out this long confession uh, that's full, full, of, full of digressions, uh, dubious claims, uh, um, so he's he's not helping himself very much by that. Although he saw he's evidently saw himself as try, trying to make a clean uh, a clean breast of things to 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 to, to offer a full confession. But it, it, there, there are lies in it that are that are obvious and transparent. I don't know exactly what he was thinking about when he when he wrote this other out. Other than to uh, document his his. Uh, his contrition. Uh, some of the witnesses that testify against him, especially the priests he encountered when he was uh, impersonating a priest uh, uh, in central Mexico, uh, thought that he was untrustworthy because of the way he spoke uh, and, and found his, uh, his logoria both puzzling and, and, and suspect. They'd never heard anything quite like him. As one of them said, uh, Atondo seemed like a persona de mala fe, a man of two tongues, uh, mm-hmm. who tried to flatter and seemed to agree with everyone. Uh, and Atondo you talk keeps about, insisting. Sorry. Go ahead. You talk about this um, as a sort of an inner conflict for him, right? And, and he describes it as an, as an illness almost of, of the soul. Um, do you think in that sense um, he is, because it's very hard to take a, um, at face value what we find in, Inquisi- in Inquisition files, right? Um, but in, in general terms, would you think he is, sincere in his um in in his repentment um i think he is mm-hmm. uh, th- 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 this is a tortured this is a tortured soul but uh the 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 sense of of uh the sense of not being right. I mean, he, he senses that powerfully. He keeps coming back to his heart as, as kind of telling him to do these things, making him do things that he knew he knows is wrong that he should never do. And in retrospect, he, he feels terrible about them and is, is deeply repentant. Um, he's, 
I don't know, some might think of both him and Aguayo as sociopaths in that sense, that they don't really care about what others, how others are affected by their, their own behavior. So it's, it, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not unnatural for us to, to say, well, this sounds like it's, it's all contrived. But I, in his case, I don't think it is. It, it, this, this propension religiosa, he keeps, keeps on coming back to time and time again, is his attempt to make sense of his, his himself as a Christian, uh, but a but a person uh, who's who's tainted by original sin, and then by the the sins that he somehow can't avoid. Uh, and the more I looked at him, uh, the, and the more I I could document, you could document his behavior through the witnesses and through, through what he what he said about himself as well. He's he, he I think is a good deal more forthright than. Aguayo about what he says mm-hmm. before the Inquisition. He says a lot of things that are are damning uh, about himself, while Aguayo will say only enough uh, to 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 make his story credible. He's he's the great master of half truths. Uh, 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 Atondo is the great master of exaggeration, and it's a kind of exaggeration that that led me to think that even though, of course, you wouldn't diagnose. Uh, a, a bipolar malady at that time. It, it simply was it was kind of beyond imagining in those terms, manic depression. His manic episodes and depressive episodes suggest to me that, that he may well have uh, had a bipolar disorder, uh, which doesn't... Well, he certainly thought of himself as ill. Right? He did, but he had no name for it other than to say it was mm-hmm. his heart. Uh, his heart that was misleading him, and and the Inquisition seemed to agree uh, by saying, "Yes, he's got a corrupted heart." I mean, this is something that really can't be remedied. This is why Aguayo spends what seems to be at least three years in the Inquisition cells, and that's that's highly unusual. Um, there weren't there weren't prison sentences. Uh, in the Inquisition at this point. When you were held in the Inquisition cells, it was pending um, investiga- investigation and trial. And he, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes that would take a year or two, but but three years when nothing seemed to be moving except that he was charged with over 30 charges, that many witnesses are brought forward, um, that he himself is 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 confessed and and testifies a number of times. Uh, it looks to me as if he's being held there to to basically keep him on ice uh, uh, for as long as you need to. In other words, he he, I think he was regarded as more of a threat to the church than Aguayo was. Aguayo was excused initially because he's a young man. He's he's he, he didn't know exactly what he was doing. And this is kind of a youthful um, excess. Uh, and and then later, you know, he's even even when he flouts the Inquisition by escaping uh, before he's sent to, uh, to sent to Cuba in the first place. Uh, and 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 he he escapes and flees and he's on the run. And then he has that. Uh, that strange episode in the Guanajuato jail when he is either practicing black magic or he and another prisoner are scheming to get sent back to the Inquisition. Uh, Smoking uh, marijuana. 
yeah, smoking marijuana and stepping on, you know, and, and destroying religious images and, and all the rest. You know, Atondo never does that. Uh, this is the first time he's ever been arrested for a serious crime when he's sent to the Inquisition for, for uh, presenting himself as a priest. So he's he he avoids the law by and large. Although he'd been he'd spent a, he'd, he'd spent a little time in jail before for uh, for uh, a theft and uh, you know I, I guess for maybe some other kind of minor uh, minor crime. But uh, he he. Uh, He's 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 not someone who's who's uh, who's 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 flaunting himself in the law. That that he, uh, he the the way in which he's he's a threat to the church ultimately, I think, is that uh, is that he, he even though he's he'd never been ordained, he really wasn't a priest. He thought of himself as a priest um, in the in the eyes of God. He has this one episode mm-hmm. where he he's so desperate that he he's he's tempted to uh, to make a pact with the devil and to to tromp on rosary beads rosary beads destroy them and he says no the the, the Virgin Mary held me back held me back mm-hmm. and uh, he, he has again these moments that seem like catharsis moments too many of them of course but but where he he goes and hears a sermon and and, and thinks. This changes my life. Uh, that I can be forgiven for all these these misdeeds that I've that, that I've that I've done. All these ways in which I've I've been a sinner. That I can still be forgiven in the eyes of God. Um, I and wonder. Then he, and then he confesses people in great numbers. The, 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 right. the act of confession becomes very important. And the people he confesses evidently are very pleased. They they, they feel mm-hmm. as if he'd listened to them carefully. That he'd. He'd help them uh, uh, and 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 understand contrition and 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 uh, had been of great service to them. It's extraordinary. He he, he himself can't make a proper confession without uh, you know with, without lies and, and and the rest mingled in there with his with his painful truths. I wonder to what extent um, this inclination of him and. Of, and him thinking of himself as a priest and confessing and really uh, thinking that he has a legitimate connection to God to perform these sacraments, to what extent did maybe the Inquisition think of uh, of these crimes through the lens of, of Protestantism? Like it, to me, yes. there's some echoes there that a very individual relationship to divinity. That's something that's mentioned by the inquisitors. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's another thing that makes him seem all the more dangerous uh, th- th- because he's, he's in earnest. Uh, he, uh, he, he thinks he has this, uh, this special relationship to God, although he, uh, he's, he, he's deeply respectful of church authority at the same time. Again, he's, he's a, He's full of paradoxes. He's full of what seem like contradictions, that, and that may be contradictions. Uh, certainly, seem contradictory to the the judges, but uh, maybe more of a paradox than, at least in his own mind, than a than a contradiction. So he's very different from Aguayo fundamentally, I would say, and and not not a picaro in the end. No. 
So uh, let's talk about maybe the the picaresque side of things. Um, you outlined the similarities of these two men with the figure of of the Spanish picaro, like Lazarillo Tormes and Guzman, Estebanillo González. And you say that in this quote, the possibility of life drawing from literature cannot be dismissed, something we talked about um, at the beginning of this interview. So I wanted to ask, how did literature, as you say, prove instructive or not? Um, when looking at this historical agents, it sounds like it proved instructive more so in the case of Aguayo, not so much in the case of Atondo, or maybe um, by contrast or comparison, it did. So could you talk a little That's bit right. uh, yeah. more about that? Right. Uh, I think it is more instructive for understanding Aguayo's sense of himself But as you just said, uh, it, it's uh, the picaresque literature allowed me to understand how different Aguayo uh, and Atondo are in, in the end. Uh, that if I hadn't been thinking about picaros, because at least on the surface, Aguayo's early behavior, and if you wanted to summarize his life in terms of events, it looks really quite picaresque. Uh, he's He's betraying people, he's deceitful, he's Uh, he's 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 moving around uh, all those things, uh, but uh, but that's not. I guess part of what what made me want to look closer at picaresque literature was to say, is that enough to say that someone is a picaro? Uh, I mean, I knew that Lazarillo and Guzman and Estebanillo and. Uh, And El Buscon were not all alike. There were fundamental differences too. What they shared, they did share this 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 basic lifestyle. But they were individuals. They were different. One of the appeals of, of this literature is that long ago, when I was looking for picare, uh, like the looking for picaros and vagabundos in the archive and not finding them. I could turn to Lazarillo, and uh, at that time I had not read Guzman de Alfarache, and and I understand why now because it's it's the most challenging it seems to me of all the picaresque novels, and the most difficult to to get your mind around because he's so many things are going on in it. He's he's such a a paradoxical figure, uh, uh, but that uh, that Lazarillo and uh, And uh, the, the, this, this great Mexican uh, novel of the early, early 19th century, uh, Periquillo Sarniento, could help me imagine what the lives of Picaros might have been like. So uh, when, when I started reading about Aguayo, uh, the, the, the first thing that popped into my head was, this sounds like, this sounds like the Periquillo Sarniento in a way. This sounds like a... Uh, This sounds like a picaro. So, in a sense, it was natural for me to, to 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 want to explore this picaresque literature, basically to test myself. Why was I thinking that, and why, when I described Aguayo to some friends when I was reading his file for the first time, all of them said that sounds like a picaro. Well, what does it mean to say that? Uh, what does it mean to put somebody into a category like that? Uh, Uh, does it does it really make sense? Are you do it doing violence to, uh, to 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 the individual figure you're talking about, either the fictional figure or the or the historical figure? Uh, uh, 
uh, what kind of sense did it make or not make to 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 talk about uh, uh, th- these these historical characters that way? And you know, the more I looked, the more I felt like um, like understanding the Picaro in terms of that idea of the of early modern an uh, 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 early modern disruption uh, and 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 great new opportunity. Uh, uh, much invention, uh, you know, the, all the ways in which the world is opening out, uh, and 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 also bringing in strangers of many kinds. Uh, that those precarious times of displacement and improvisation seem to rhyme uh, with the lives and times of Aguayo and Atondo, as well as exposing the. Uh, uh, something of the of the world in which these picaresque fictional figures uh, appeared and were were being used as a kind of vehicle to talk about those times. Um, in the case of of Usman de Alfarache, we, uh, uh, the the author Aleman uh, uh, actually has um, uh, Guzman say outright that by telling you about my sins. My misbehavior, my life. I'm telling you about the world I live in. So there was a conscious sense of of, of being uh, an atalaya, as as the as the novel was called, to uh, a, a kind of watchtower. Uh, it's a watchtower both onto a, a moral universe and also onto the, uh, the the rather dirty and dusty world in which. Uh, a character that like that might have uh, might have lived. So I thought I needed to learn more about uh, both the early history of picaresque literature and how the term uh, picaro and related tropes, especially vagabundo and forastero, were were used. Mm-hmm. You know, what what does it? There's mean? also the Thank question you. of what what is I'm particular sorry? about the. There's also the question of what is particular about the Spanish-American um, picaresque character as opposed to, well, we have Periquillo Sarmiento, but most of most of the picaresque works that we've been talking about were produced, written, and are about um, Spanish society. Of course, there was transatlantic um, exchange, cultural exchange, and as you said, they were reprinted and widely read in Spanish America too, but if what are the particularities of the say picaresque experience in a colonial Mexico in comparison to Spain? Okay, that's that's a great unanswered question, Daniela. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that I don't think I don't think we're ready to answer yet because we don't know enough about these figures. Yeah, here are two characters that we can talk about. We can't talk about dozens. I would say that if you. Uh, and, and and again, there hasn't been a a, a deep uh, uh, and and thorough study of or attempt at it really of, of vagabundos in, in in the New World anywhere mm-hmm. in Peru, Mexico, wherever. All we've got is the administrative reports that saying you know this is a terrible problem in the Andes, you know, up, up near Potosi in particular, uh, or or in Mexico, we've got all these laws in the 16th century. But there is a difference, I think, in who the picaros, who the vagabundos are uh, over time. Uh, 
that is in the 16th century, those administrative reports, reports are worried about Spanish immigrants who have come to the new world and are you kind of without ties. They don't come with family. Uh, we've got individuals, mostly male, uh, wandering around. And these are the vagabundos that uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the viceroys and the crown is worried about. By the 17th century, to the extent that we, we've got descriptions of vagabundos, we've got them mentioned often still. Uh, they're mestizos, castizos. These are people who are uh, they're uprooted in some fundamental sense here, not just that they don't come from Spain, not just that they, yeah, that, that, that they're born in America, they're, but that they're, they're not indios. They don't belong to a pueblo de indios. They're not part of the República de Españoles, exactly. They're not identified as Españoles. Uh, who are they? Who are these people? Where do they fit? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to carry this to the, kind of the, the point of psychologizing about mestizaje and the way that Octavio Paz did in Labyrinth of Solitude. But, uh, but certainly from the official point of view is there's concern that, that, that the vagabundo is now uh, rootless in an ethnic sense, as well as uh, uh, you know, this sort of horizontal physical sense. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's... A- so how do you think these um, micro histories um, illuminate broader, bigger historical narratives of, of Mexican um, history and of Spanish-American colonial society in general? If maybe they don't, um, <laughs> that's, that's 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 a big that's a big question that <laughs> that, uh, that that we need another podcast to, to begin talking <laughs> about. But uh, but my my first thought was the one that I shared with you at the beginning that uh, uh, that the lives of of, of Aguayo and Atondo I, as as vagabundos as and Aguayo is a, as a picaresque figure, I don't think help us. Too much to understand the, uh, uh, the the independence period in Mexico, even though both of them are, uh, one of them is actually operating right within the independence uh, war period, and the other one uh, comes a generation uh, a generation earlier. And the reason I don't uh, that that does that doesn't seem to work for me is that I don't see the independence period in. In, in, in teleological terms. That is, there's a kind of decline and fall uh, that's, that's perfectly evident. We could predict it from the 1750s or 1760s. There are, there are changes that are pointing in that direction. But the reason, it seems to me, the timing of an independence movement, an independence, independence movement that in Mexico is, is complicated and really quite ambiguous, uh, that the battle cry at the beginning is long live the king, death to bad government. Now, yeah. how could you be talking about independence? You're saying long live the king. Well, we're going to move during the course of the independence struggle further and further away from the idea of long live the king. I mean, partly because the king has been deposed anyway uh, by the Napoleonic invasion of, of, of Spain, Spain in 1808. But 
And, you know, it seems to me that the the coming of independence in in Mexico, it's not premature exactly, but it it happens when it happens because there's a crisis in Spain, uh, because we've had a French revolution. Uh, that, that opens out to a, to a revolution in Haiti. Uh, the Napoleonic invasion deposes the king in Spain in 18, uh, 1808. Uh, uh, Napoleon's brother, Joseph Bonaparte, is, is made king, but he's totally illegitimate. Nobody accepts that. So we've got a kind of vacuum of power there. And so here in these New World colonies, who are you loyal to? You can't really be loyal to the Spanish king except in a kind of vague, principled way because there is no king. So there's a vacuum of power, and it's it's going to be filled uh, in Spain and, and and in the New World initially by uh, the beginnings of a kind of liberal movement uh, that that leads to the Constitution of 1812 uh, in in Spain, which treats it it doesn't do away with monarchy, but it treats the monarch as a kind of uh, constitutional wild beast uh, to be to be hemmed in and controlled in various ways. Now that's that, that's precisely when the Inquisition in New Spain is is first abolished, 1812, after that constitution. But it's a very it's it's short lived. Uh, the 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 Constitution is abolished in, in excuse me the Inquisition is abolished in Spain, but also in the in the American colonies where it still existed because it's it's a Spanish institution. Uh, but the Inquisition is brought back as soon as the uh, as soon as the uh, the French are expelled. Uh, and the king is restored to to, to his throne, Ferdinand VII, in 1814. So we've got the, the the Inquisition coming back from 1814 to 1820 when it's finally you know, completely abolished. So, in other words, there are external events that are going to speed the process of in of of independent sentiment and independence movements in the New World. Uh, and so that trying to trace an, a purely internal cause. And look at figures like Atondo and Aguayo as 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 somehow contributing to that. I don't think works. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though uh, you know both of them, uh, in their own way, are subversive, but they're not subversive in a political sense. These these guys are loners. Uh, they're, yeah. they're 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 not part of the movement. So and, that and brings it, me and, to and my. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. I was, I was just going to say that that uh, it's really not as if there are more priest impostors in the 18th century than there have been before. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I talk in the book briefly, and this is something that needs more research. This is, this is a little more than a surmise because I've spent much of my career as, as a scholar interested in the priesthood and religious culture. But uh, uh, there's a kind of steady trickle of priest impostors from the 16th century on. Most of them were defrocked priests who had no business uh, continuing to celebrate mass uh, or, or confess or, or administer sacraments in any way. But uh, there's a steady trickle of people who would be analogous in some way to uh, Aguayo and Atondo. Uh, so it's, it's not as, we, as if we've got a wellspring of this in the 18th century that suggests a kind of uh, kind of growing uh, a kind of greater and more organized anti-church or anti-clerical movement. There's always been anti-clericalism in Mexico. Always been ways in which uh, the the church felt threatened, and uh, um, uh, but most people uh, 
did perform their duties as uh, basic duties as, as Christians, accepted the church, and recognized that to be a citizen in this in in the, in this society, you, you you had to be a practicing Catholic. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, no. Yeah, I was going to ask about um, what you mentioned about both of these characters being subversive um, figures in a in in a more individual sense, in the sense that they are loners, they've completely broken ties with their families or friends, um, Atondo marries, but then abandons the wife. And so I wanted to go back to the title, which I think is lovely, Fugitive Freedom, and to ask you, um, what does fugitive freedom mean for in the context of, of Aguayo and Atondo? Because Freedom is actually, um, many literary scholars of picaresque narrative state that freedom is what, in the end, defines all picaros, that they have freedom of movement. Or, And so what does fugitive freedom mean in the context of, of these two men? Yeah, freedom of movement, but, but you're on the run. What kind of freedom is that? <laughs> right. Uh, so it, it seems to me that, that uh, the, the, the title is suggesting two kinds of fugitive here, fugitive freedom. Uh, one is, uh, is uh, Aguayona Tonto's attempts to exercise personal freedom, uh, being on the run, being fugitives from the law. So it's fugitive in the sense that these, these guys are ex exercising their freedom by being fugitives. Uh, and... Uh, you're not going to be able to, to run from the law indefinitely, just as the, as the literary picaros don't. If it's not the law, it's going to be some other picaros who are going to steal from them or turn them in or betray them. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a freedom that's hemmed in in that sense of being on the run, fugitives from the law. The other sense in which this freedom is, is fugitive is that... Uh, that their freedom to do as they wished was inevitably interrupted and short-lived. It wasn't going to last long. Uh, it wasn't going to be a way of life uh, that, that, that they could sustain indefinitely. To me, the wonder is that, that Aguayo lasted as long as he did, that he survived as physically as long as he did. Uh, and my short answer to that is I think he was really very skillful in... Um, uh, in uh, avoiding the worst kind of manual labor. He's, he's sentenced to penal servitude on these fortifications in, in Cuba, uh, but he, he, he avoids long service actually on the fort uh, by uh, using his literacy and convincing uh, you know, his, who, whoever his master is at that point, the, the captain of a ship in one case, that he can be of service as a secretary. He can keep the books. Uh, so he gets a, I think he gets a desk job almost everywhere he goes uh, for that reason. He lasts as long as he does because of that and, and because of a certain cunning that, that he has, a certain resourcefulness. Uh, but in general, I would say these, these guys are, are seeing a, a, a life of freedom that's that interrupted and short-lived. To understand that, I don't want to go on too long here, but... Uh, it's, it's useful to make a, a quick distinction between freedom and liberty. 
Um, freedom is about personal autonomy. It's about being free to do as you wish without hindrance, uh, essentially without regard to others. While liberty is about the exercise of freedom in community, about the extent of personal freedom that's allowed in a society. It's a political concept. It's linked to institutions, to lawmakers, to office holders. It's about rights and restraints in the service of, of and restraints about, about personal freedom that's at the service of some higher purpose. And it precisely, the, now here's where kind of our historical context in the 18th century becomes important. Um, it's especially at this time in Europe, uh, and that includes Spain and North America, and to some extent, uh, Spanish colonies in the New World, there's a growing, increasingly embittered friction between an older and hedged and pessimistic sense of liberty, uh, deeply pessimistic about, uh, about human capacities, especially of ordinary people, the general public, that they really weren't capable of exercising personal freedom. It needed to be withheld and uh, severely restricted. Now, of course, this serves uh, a privileged few. This is part of the kind of uh, undergirding uh, justification of a uh, of a hierarchical and uh, 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 aristocratic authoritarian uh, uh, society, uh, pol- political society. Um, now, against that, in the 18th century, increasingly, we had this sense of the virtue of free will, uh, of absolute personal freedom as a kind of building block for society, rather than something that needs to be restricted. It, it's the kind of sine qua non from, from which you build a just society. I would say that Aguayo and Atondo are effectively outside of this, this argument. Uh, they needed allies to guarantee their freedom, and like the Picaro, they, they have none. Um, so personally, they're, they're subversive in their attempts as loners to do as they pleased uh, uh, or felt com- compelled to do in the, in the case of, uh, of Atondo. And they're doing that, this at the expense of others, uh, and that's especially true of Aguayo. Uh, but at the same time, both of them claim a certain privilege in colonial society. As we talked about before, they, uh, they aspired to a kind of freewheeling freedom while claiming to be Espanoles, of Spanish and old Christian descent, uh, a standing that might open doors uh, and to, to, social, to social standing that they, that they, they coveted. Um, but they failed. Because almost almost everyone seemed to be making the claim of, of Spanish ancestry. It was so diluted there in the 18th century that they, they could claim nothing special about themselves as Spaniards. They were no, no more Spaniard than, uh, than than most people uh, living in this society. So the, the the basic distinction to be a real Spaniard here in the 18th century is to be a peninsular in the New World. There, there are fewer Spanish immigrants in New Spain in the 18th century than there'd been in the, either in the 17th or the, or the 16th centuries. So that wasn't going to help most of the population that one wanted to clearly claim to, to, uh, to, to, to being Spanish and, and, and of Spanish ancestry. So before we, um, before we wrap up, I, I have to ask, 
who is your favorite? <laughs> who do you sympathize more with? A wayo or a thumbnail? Because <laughs> I, I feel like I've, I know them now. Yeah, well, I, I sympathize more with Atondo <laughs> because I do think I, th I do think he was ill, and 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 uh, his, his impulses were were something that to some extent were beyond his control. But I'm 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 much more in awe of Aguayo. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Think, They're both very special. Uh, yeah. Well. Thank you so much for um, this wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed the book and I thought um, it really uh, brings to the fourth the question of, of the Picaro in, in this side of the Atlantic. So I think that's, um, that's going to be important for historians and literary scholars alike. Thank you so much, Bill, for taking the time to um, talk to me and I will see you around. Thank you very much for uh, the conversation, Daniela, and for reading the book.